So a huge part of role-playing has to do with the player's psychology and sort of the interplay between the players and the GM at the table. And the designer doesn't really get to decide what that dynamic is, but they can try to influence it and by having systems and features that create uh, conflicts and cooperation and opportunities. And so even though this guest today doesn't design games. He has a lot of experience. He's got a lot of opinions. And I wanted to talk to him to try to get that perspective. He goes by GM Dave. He also goes by the man behind the screen. I met him on Minds.com, which is a sort of social social network site alternative to Facebook with, with better policies and uh, sort of a free speech attitude and more user empowerment, that kind of stuff. If you want to find me on Minds, you can go to minds.com slash Pullman, and we can set up an interview for you to come on. If you want to support the Game Design with Richard Pullman podcast, go to patreon.com slash Pullman. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. I know I did, and I'm looking forward to the content the man behind the screen is going to be putting out, including his YouTube content, but... Mostly those adventures, those system agnostic adventures that he's planning on releasing. So without further ado, here is the episode. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. You go by uh, Man Behind the Screen there, and uh, I'm, I'm guessing on some of your other channels and stuff. But uh, you also go by GM Dave. You're not actually... Uh, a game designer like most of the people we are, I interview on the podcast, but um, you definitely have opinions on game design and a lot of experience, it sounds like. So I wanted to talk to you just to sort of, you know, you seem like an interesting guy on there. I wanted to know what you were, what systems you run, and well, go ahead and introduce yourself and what you're all into now. Well, thank you. Uh, as mentioned, uh, my name is GM Dave. I also go by the man behind the screen. And uh, you can find me on YouTube and BitChute under those names. Um, do note, if you look me up on YouTube, the YouTube URL does not state the man behind the screen because my YouTube channel has been there actually since probably 2008. I, I've been on YouTube for a long time, not making videos, but been on the platform using it for you know over a decade. Um, as mentioned, yeah, I, I run the YouTube channel and generally speaking, I tend more often than not to talk about tabletop games, tabletop gaming and different aspects therein. My focus tends to be a little bit more on the role play side of things. Cause in my experiences, I've been gaming for almost 25 years. My experience has shown me that that's really the area where most people tend to struggle is not getting a grasp on the systems because eventually you're going to figure out most systems that you come across, especially nowadays with as simplified as they tend to be getting. But hmm. the role play aspect, yeah, I find the role play aspect of it is something a lot of people, especially at the start, really struggle to kind of get into. Because you get that awkward feeling like, oh, I don't know if I want to do a voice. I don't know if I want to do this. <laughs> I don't know how to approach the idea of this character. So... I kind of tend to tailor some of my advice for players a little more towards that. And I give advice for dungeon masters and GMs as well, that it's 
based on things I've experienced and noticed over, you know, two and a half decades of being involved in the hobby. Yeah. I know for myself, I didn't, uh, I, I only started in the last couple of years getting into role playing and I, I did a ton of listening to people on YouTube, people, uh, not just advice channels, but like live playing and just watching the way people on YouTube played, not just the big channels, but I like watching like obscure random things, not just Dungeons and Dragons, any, any old system. And then sort of seeing common denominators between, you know, what they all have in common and all that kind of stuff. And I've played a couple sessions myself personally, and that was very useful and very insightful, but, uh, I, I can't claim to have this huge history of, especially the running games, but I do plan on doing a, a play test in the near future of my system with, with some people and getting, getting into the role of the GM. So, uh, advice is certainly something I could use as well. Um, how much, uh, how much do you think you, you target audiences that are sort of completely new versus sort of what I see some people doing, which is jumping into like hot button issues of the day, kind of like staying up with latest outrages in the RPG community, all that kind of stuff. My focus is definitely more towards you know, the advice and discussions about the hobby, you know, theory crafting, and sometimes even just having fun. Uh, one of the things I do on there, which I believe was the video you discovered on, is I've got my bestiary series where I discuss, you know, different creatures from various tabletop games that I just personally happen to find interesting. So I talk about them and all of the videos, I think the only exception was the Tyranids because really there's the only time you're really going to find Tyranids is if you're playing a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop game and sure, yeah. 40, 40k, yeah, 40k is pretty well-defined races and creatures already. Talking about them was just because I like them. But <laughs> yeah. previous entries, the first one was the Blue Dragons as they're presented in Dungeons and Dragons, as they've been presented from the start. Um, then I went to the Glabrezu, which you know, are de- a demon presented in D&D and Pathfinder that despite the fact that it's this horrifying dog-faced thing with these giant muscled arms that end in huge crab claws is a demon of temptation who seeks to strike deals with people, <laughs> which is it's such an interesting contrast. You've got this big, savage, horrid-looking monster, but it's just sitting there trying to, you know, tempt people to make a deal with it so it can lead them to ruin, hmm. you know, yeah, that something is- like that. That, that, that is sort of breaking out of the, the sort of the traditional concept of the fantasy monster or whatever. It's a, it's, it sounds a, almost kind of surreal. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I know that, uh, you said that you had a, a compendium that you were trying to work on as well for different kinds of adventures. And I'm guessing that, you know, having this breadth of knowledge from your own experience and stuff you can pull from to try to like basically give advice suggestions and content, actual content for people to use, right, in in one place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and with the channel especially, I, I try to make sure that everyone, you know, knows that I mean, I'm, I'm not infallible. I make my mistakes. I've had some videos in the past that I've had to end up removing, editing, and re-uploading because I got things wrong. I misunderstand, uh, misunderstood something that I read in a book when I was... Uh, a good example, actually, is a friend of mine 
he requested that I help him figure out how to make a fifth edition character build of a third edition prestige class called the Dervish, which, you know, as I'm sure the name could kind of hint, is sort of a fantasy where you've got this character who mixes dancing with swordplay to sort of move quickly around a battlefield, deal damage in a wide area. Mm-hmm. 5e doesn't have inherently built in an effective way of doing that, so I just sort of dug through the books I have and I pieced together a cross-class fighter rogue build for him that I put together and made a video of discussing the idea. Then it turned out I did cross-classing for 5th edition entirely wrong, because I started back in the early 90s with 3rd edition, and then moved into Pathfinder. Oh, yeah. So, 5th edition being a much newer system to me, (laughs) even still, though I've been playing it a fair bit since that's what most of my players play, and it's one big advantage of it is it's very easy to sort of pick up and get started. It doesn't require as much prep as something that's as crunch-heavy as Pathfinder or 3rd edition. Right. Um, But I'm used to that crunch. So there were a ton of elements that I got wrong, and someone who saw the video commented, hey, you did this, 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 wrong. It's like this list of seven or eight core things. I'm like, well, shit. Okay, um, can the video, re-edit it, re-upload it, fix it, and then tell everyone, hey, I re-uploaded this, that's why this isn't there, because I got all of this wrong. Was so, it like half the length after you cut out all this stuff or what? Like, Well, I, I ended up re-recording the whole thing because the problem was is uh, because I misunderstood the way cross-classing worked in 5e, the build I ended up doing, I, I wasn't fully satisfied with the build I made, but it was the closest I thought that I could get until I was told, no, you screwed this up, you misread this. And the portion I misread is the, the rules for cross-classing in... Uh, Fifth edition, it's it's a little different from third. And third, you can cross-class into pretty much any class you want. The downside is supposed to be that if you're moving out of what is your character's or your race's favorite class, or say you're playing an elf in third edition, their favorite class would be wizard. If you are a fighter and cross-class rogue, your rogue levels would be, you'd only gain half the experience points as a rogue, but if you went to wizard, you'd get full experience points. That's how sure. they did cross-classing in third edition. It's like an ex- experience penalty for for cross-classing. Yeah, yeah. Well, fifth edition is basically you have to meet certain stat thresholds, and I misread the fighter. I thought that it said for the fighter that you had to have a thirteen in both dexterity and strength. And I'm like, well, okay, that means I'm going to need to go a certain number of levels of fighter first to get the amount of stats needed so that I can just go rogue, because all I need to do is get dexterity for rogue. That's a lot easier. Well, I ended up being informed, no, it's 13 dex or 13 strength, so you don't have to start this way. And uh, th- There was a whole list of things I did wrong, but that one core thing meant that everything I put together to try mm-hmm. and make this class fantasy work was essentially ended up working at half capacity when I could have done something a lot better. So I went back and redid the whole thing. I'm I'm thinking of, obviously from a game design point of view, I'm thinking of what to blame there, you know, blame the documentation for not being clear enough. (laughs) That's right away what my mind goes to is, you know, you've had, if you had a game, like if I, in my system, if I, 
ended up coming up with multiple editions and then I change core rules from one edition to the next, like I would think you'd want to make it pretty obvious what you changed and, and, uh, yeah. make it simple for people to adapt to a new thing, assuming that they've are familiar with the previous stuff. But, um, 5e is kind of interesting because of the way that it, it doesn't assume that you've played anything else, but a lot of it is obviously so familiar with people who are familiar with old stuff that, um, I don't know. What is, what is your take on the balance there that they struck with the, the rule book and the documentation of everything? It's a, it's a mixed bag for me. There are a lot of elements of 5e that I have really grown to enjoy. Um, but coming from more crunch heavy system and with the very, very limited experience in fourth edition that I have, which I didn't stick with for more than maybe a month. Because uh, fourth edition was so wildly different from everything that came before it. That <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It was just like I, I, I had nothing. Nothing really pulled me there. There was nothing that spoke to me in that system. So I stuck with the one that I knew and enjoyed. I'm sad that I missed the the edition wars that happened after fourth edition came out and and uh, apparent yeah. the the epic uh, disagreements of how to handle things and whether fourth represented a step forward or, uh, you know, something so different, it shouldn't even be called Dungeons and Dragons or unfortunately, I yeah, came that, after all that, that was a, that was an interesting time, particularly since I was in my last years of high school when it happened. So <laughs> you've got, you've got double drama going on there just from that. But I do remember I didn't get too involved in the edition wars. Cause generally speaking, it was me and my core group of friends who were local to me that, that played. I didn't really start going online to seek out games until until much later when I was already in college, um, and mostly born out of necessity because half my friends went into the military, the other half moved out of state. Right, so yeah. I didn't end up getting wrapped up into that too much. By the time I sort of got pulled into what was left of the edition wars, it was at the tail end of it when everyone had pretty much accepted. There is a small audience for 4th Edition, but by and large, 4th Edition didn't work, and Pathfinder is the name of the game right now. Hmm. Um, but I did have an interesting encounter with one guy who <laughs> I, I distinctly remember what he used to say about people who continued to play 3 or 3.5 three, Edition and people who moved on to Pathfinder. His claim was, well, if you're not playing 4th Edition, it's just because you hate fun. <laughs> okay. So that was, uh, that, that was my, um, that was my involvement in the edition wars was scratching my head at this particular guy. But beyond that, I didn't get too involved with it. I know from just uh, looking at it from an outsider's perspective, cause I had never had the chance to play, um, three or five or anything before five. Um, fourth edition looks the most fun to me because I, I love the, the grid based, you know, concept. I love the, I know there's so many things that they changed there that were just seemed refreshing to me. But, um, since then, since initially looking into it, I can, I'm, I'm starting to see where people are making a case for kind of having an older school, uh, approach and leaving things more loose and leaving things more sort of, uh, negotiable, I guess you could say. What do you say is, is it that makes fourth edition, you know, you said it didn't work or something, but I'm, uh, I'm not exactly sure I follow why. Uh, I, I wouldn't say so much that it didn't work. Um, 
but it didn't speak to me, is what I would say. Okay. The, the way, when I started playing 4th edition, like, I could see there were, there were good things about it. And some of those good things, like small portions of them did get sort of pulled in and converted a little bit to 5th edition, kind of like, you know, kinks sort of hammered out a bit. Um, but the feel that the system had to me, like, coming into 3.5 and 3rd edition as someone who was admittedly in part, it was just because I was used to that system. Fourth edition felt like a much smaller system, not just because it was new, but because of the change of approach they had to combat, to abilities, and to classes. Everything was so wildly different that mm. as I played it, it just it didn't feel right for me. And I remember, I remember this was a big thing that a lot of people said. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with it now, but it, at the time, being a stupid, you know, high school age teenager, <laughs> I did. Um, the one thing I heard a lot of people say about fourth edition is, oh, it feels like a pen and paper MMORPG. And I could sort of see where they were coming from because it, where it video gamey, right? It, didn't it, was yes. that the accusation? Yeah, it, it felt very video gamey and I could definitely see where they were coming from. And in some ways I do still think that there is a case to be made for that. I'm not like a hundred percent on board with that idea anymore because I can see it with a little bit more nuance, but hmm. just there was nothing really mechanically in the system that spoke to me that pulled me in. Cause one of the things I grew to love about third and 3.5 as I was playing it is my friends and I were a little little odd compared to a lot of the other people we knew who played uh, during the three, five days, because we always took it upon ourselves to make it a challenge that if we were focusing on a certain set of skills, a certain set of abilities, as we were building our characters, we wanted to represent that in the way we played them, not just mechanically, but as characters. And most of the people that we knew who were playing three, five treated it less as a tabletop RPG and more like a tabletop miniatures game. Um, right. Much more focus on the combat and everything, which is understandable because 3.5 was good at that. Uh, so was Pathfinder. Uh, Pathfinder did manage to smooth out a lot more of those uh, bugs and errors, as people would put it. But it, it was those were systems that are good for very, you know, crunch-heavy, number-heavy, combat and tactics-heavy games. Mm-hmm. So I got used, my friends and I got used to sort of blending that combat and tactics element in with the way we played our characters. And, you know, it just, it made the game feel richer for us at that time. And that was a niche that for you just wasn't able to scratch for me, which was a big part of the reason why I just couldn't get into it. With everything being, feeling so much more predefined, because you just you had your characters, the classes, they had their abilities that you could pick from, and the abilities just worked as is. And if we're being fair, that is really pretty much how three five worked too. You have spellcasters, you have your list of spells you can access depending on your class, and then you pick from those spells. It's still kind of like you're slotting in abilities, similarly to fourth edition. Just for some reason, the way three five put it together didn't feel as video gamey with it. Well, that's what I was going to ask about because you had mentioned before about the YouTube channel and getting people to be able to role play and, you know, not so much the system side or the system crunch and mechanics and stuff, but just getting people into the correct mindset, I suppose, for role playing. And a lot of that has to do with 
I would assume table etiquette and, and getting, uh, you know, getting into the right mindset, but in, on the system level, uh, I don't, s- I'm struggling to see how the, you know, having the predefined options, I see Dungeons and Dragons as being pretty, uh, you know, it's very class oriented. It's, you don't get to just make up whatever your character does. It's not a point by system. Like it's not a GURPS like, you know, uh, free for all to, yeah. to customize your guy and stuff of like that. So in the end, you always have to bring in your own sort of, uh, flavor and your own twist on a character that, you know, you have 20 different barbarians and they all, you know, essentially mechanically, they're all identical almost, but in terms of what they say they're like and their backstory and their personalities, that's where you get to customize it more. Uh, am I wrong in that? Or is there, were there actual like options in the books that helped bring out things like your character's backgrounds and sort of little flavorful things you could choose or, where, where does the where does the customization really come in for you, and why would it speak to you more in one and not the other? Yeah, um, for three five, honestly, there really wasn't a whole lot in there that focused on the roleplay aspect of things. They did have you know some sections like they had a chapter in the player's handbook dedicated to you know helping you define your character and all that stuff, figure out the backstory elements, um, but it wasn't as in the forefront as it is in. Great, actually, a great example right now for D and D would be Fifth Edition. Fifth Edition, that's much more in the forefront. You have the entire chapter dedicated to character backgrounds, and not only do those backgrounds give you ideas of ways you can role play your character through the flaw bond. Um, right. I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting what they all are, but that that system. But they also impart small mechanical benefits too. Yeah, that's what I was noticing. You can't entirely ignore the backgrounds. As just being, well, that's just text. I don't care. You know, I'm, there's some people who are just so oriented around the video gamey mentality that's just, I'm just optimizing my stats. I just want to be the most effective healer or damage dealer or something. And, and so they'll just essentially ignore anything that doesn't mechanically contribute to their character. But then they have these backgrounds, but then they give just enough of a mechanical uh, edge to it that even if you are just trying to optimize, there's still different options you have to take seriously. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually something I've noticed in, you know, comparing 3.5 to 5e and Pathfinder as well. Pathfinder is often considered an iteration on 3.5. Right. Because really, ultimately, that's what it was. Um, I'm in a few Pathfinder groups and 5e groups on Facebook still. I know, Facebook. Oh, God. <laughs> um but the one thing I do see is that, you know, even now, how many years has it been since 5e came out now? Like what, three or four? I, I can't remember exactly. I think at least four. Yeah, it's, it's been a little while that it's been out and people are still having those arguments about like, oh, I don't like 5e because it doesn't have that, that same, you know, mechanical depth to it, which is absolutely fair. I, that's something that I've, even as someone who does enjoy 5e for its simplicity, I do still struggle as a former Pathfinder player with the fact that I don't have nearly as many options in 5e yeah. as I did in Pathfinder. And do you think that but, like when you in Pathfinder and stuff, as you build your character, it's that is how you express your character is by picking and customizing all these meaningful mechanical options 
as opposed to if they gave if they simplified that but they gave you more expressive backstory options or something like um for you personally and for the people and also the people you you know play with and stuff is it is it the options that gives you informs your character's personality and that gets you into the role playing as that um as that persona as you're playing because you know you chose some feat or something that that specializes you in a way that you know now when you role play you you don't feel like you're the same as this other rogue or this other whatever character that is the same class even but you're so distinguished in these finer details that that you feel different even personality wise as a result to a degree but ultimately that degree did end up being pretty small because um in 35 there really wasn't much of anything in terms of the mechanics that fed into the idea of hey you know it's worth the while to figure out a character background and the type of character you are personality wise all that's they didn't really provide any sort of mechanical boon for that pathfinder started to once they introduced traits and drawbacks which i think if i remember correctly they introduced when they started publishing the adventure paths because they wanted ways to sort of give story ways to tie into the characters that also gave small mechanical benefits. So they kind of started on that a little bit more once Pathfinder came around. But in terms of my friends and I doing that, that was something we kind of decided on ourselves over time. And I don't think it's necessarily even something we actively consciously decided on. I think it's something that over the years we sort of realized we just kind of naturally gravitated to doing that. So it's just the sort of players we were, but you no, know, it's it's very much divorced. Uh, mm-hmm. The mechanics and the role play in three and three five, and Pathfinder two, even with the traits and drawback system, is very much divorced. And even in five e, with as much as they add in, it's still pretty divorced. Right. They they give the suggestion that you know, oh, GMs, if your care, if you notice your players playing your characters as they've described them through the flaws, bond, personality, consider giving them inspiration. Right, yeah, exactly. And that yeah, nobody does that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't do that. I've never um, seen somebody give inspiration for like maybe for like an entertaining moment or something, but the whole concept of inspiration is on as a game designer strikes me as very light a very light touch you know, they could be very, they could have been way more heavy handed about it. Uh, but yeah. they wanted to have a very gentle sort of like, well, it's up to you. You know, everything is just, you know, essentially negotiable. And if a player wanted to essentially, you know, constantly have inspiration and always be, uh, you know, using that as part of their strategy, it would be very hard to try to chase that if like, you have to just, the GM just has to be willing to, to do it. And you'd have to like bag him to be like, Hey, I just did something. Can you give me inspiration for this? Or like, it's, it's, it yeah. doesn't feel like I, a system feature. I've honestly seen it happen at times where I, I'd be watching a live play of something where someone does something, you know, pretty, you know, pretty entertaining or pretty thematically appropriate for their character that kind of goes under the radar. And I've heard the player kind of semi jokingly say, uh, inspiration. And then the GM, I've seen GMs actually go, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, you get inspiration. Because <laughs> I, yeah. exactly. I, I, I see them forget about it all the time, and I'll admit, as someone who plays and runs 5e, I've forgotten about it a lot. And as a player, I forget to use it. I forget it's even part of the system because mm-hmm. it, it, it's not, it's not as impactful as you might think it is because it gets used so scarcely. And if it was, see, you now as a designer, I'm, I love, I actually hate Dungeons and Dragons in so many ways on a system level. I, I res- obviously respect it as being a, this titan of the industry that dominates, but, um, just mechanically, I have so many beefs with how they've done things. And so that would be like an example where if I, if I was in charge, I might say something like there'd be some benefit to just having inspiration without having to say, Oh, I use it now. And then I get, you know, this, I get to roll again and choose the higher value or whatever. It would be like possessing the inspiration gives you a constant benefit to certain things. And maybe depending on what your class is or depending on a choice you've made in customizing your character, that defines what that benefit is when you have inspiration. And then you would have people competing to get inspiration uh, all the time so that it's a constant buff to their character in a specific flavorful way or something like that, then you could get people sort of really focusing on it because there's such an, there'd be an interesting angle to it, but it's such a generic, uh, small thing mechanically. Yeah. That it's easy to forget about, even though it's supposed to be this incentive to really role play your hardest and get into your character and stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I mean, in regards to, you know, things like rewarding, you know, inspiration, giving some sort of, mechanical reward for good role play or even, you know, coming up with a clever combat strategy or something like that that ends up working really well. For me personally, the one game I find does that much better than Dungeons and Dragons is Savage Worlds, which is actually my favorite game. I, I much prefer Savage Worlds to Dungeons and Dragons because not only is it uh really quick to get games together, relatively speaking, because like 5e, Savage Worlds is a relatively simple system on its surface, but there's enough there and enough customization options left to the players and the GMs with the way they've set up their core set of abilities and how stats and skills are worked out that it's easy to get into, but has enough meat to satisfy people who want something that has a little bit more crunch to it, while not being overbearing. It meets, for me, a real nice middle ground. And the thing I like about their reward system, they use a reward system called Benny's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The thing is, you get, I believe you start most games with three of them. In most of their settings, you start with three Bennies or whatever the equivalent is in those settings. Yeah, I actually have the PDF for that, and I just barely opened it up. You have three of them, and it says... Gaming stones or other tokens that signify a little bit of good luck or fate is how it describes it. Yeah. And you and do, so you do you get can, three of them, yeah. You And it gives you a lot of options for how to use it. You can use it to absorb wounds that you might take. You can use it to bolster a skill or damage roll. Um, it gives you a handful of options. And then depending on the settings, too, they might give you additional options. Uh, the Deadlands setting, the, the weird horror Western setting they have, for example, they've got three different types of bennies. They call them fate chips in that. And 
They suggest because it's, you know, it's a Western style setting. They suggest using poker chips, but the three different types are based on the color you draw. If you draw a white one, it's the reg, it functions as a regular Benny. If you draw a red one, it comes with an additional benefit, but the game master also gets to draw a white Benny to use for his, for the enemies he's putting against you. Hmm. Or if you have a blue one, which is the highest one that you can just earn normally, it gets all the benefits without giving the game master a free use of one to bolster his uh, his monsters. And there's a fourth one you can earn, and that one they call the, the legend chip, but that's earned after completing, like, a really, like, it's suggested that if your players do a really fantastic job in a game, like, they're really on point, you award them a legend chip at the end of that session to use in the next session, which basically does everything you could think of and gives a plus two bonus to everything you're doing for that round. It's kind of insane. Right. I know game design wise, I've heard other designers reference Benny's often as being this sort of really in your face, uh, straightforward, sort of powerful incentive to, you know, it's almost considered too heavy handed by some designers because of how it's like, it's just this currency that you literally just like, you know, uh, you're, you're always involving it to the point where you might, you might start changing the way you play to just try to rack up as many as you can and, and it can become silly. But in, at the same time, uh, you can see how nobody uses something like, um, inspiration. So there's obviously, there's something wrong with that angle too. And, and I think I'd, I'd be very curious to play Savage World sometime and actually, uh, figure out what the, the feeling difference is as you're playing. What, what is your take on, like you said, it's your favorite system to play. What is, what is mm-hmm. it about Savage Worlds that all, when it all comes together, what is the feeling different f- from something like Dungeons and Dragons? One of the things that's interesting is, um, because it doesn't work on the standard D20 system, Savage World's pace in combat ends up being pretty different. Um, 5e has faster combat than Pathfinder, for sure, and 3.5. That was one of the biggest drawbacks of those systems for me, for as much as I enjoyed them and for as long as I enjoyed them, is at a certain point, once you start getting into high levels, some of those combats can take hours to complete. Right. Yep. It's, absolutely. it's insane. And 5e is a lot snappier than that, but even then, there's still a lot of little things that kind of drag things down and slow the pace. Especially if, you know, your group's a little bit too big or you have people who aren't quite as experienced. Even 5e, as simple as it is, it still suffers from that problem that I've basically seen every D20 system suffer from where once you get into the thick of combat, especially when you're getting into multiple enemies versus multiple players, things start to slow down and eventually things become very stationary. It's very much, oh, I'm standing here. These two zombies are in front of me. I'm just going to keep hitting this one till it dies. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Savage Worlds is much snappier with its combat because oftentimes you're rolling one or two dice uh, to attack, you're rolling two dice to attack, whatever your 
combat dice is based on the weapon or skill you're using, and then the wild die, which is D6. You roll the two, you take whichever one's higher, you compare it against the threshold for what you're doing. If you're higher than it, you hit. If you're lower than it, you don't. It's real fast like that because you're not going into the whole issue of, oh, I've got to roll the 20, add my strength, add my proficiency, compare it to the enemy's AC to see if I hit. Then I can roll my damage, add my strength to that, mm-hmm. and take that from the health. Yeah. With Savage Worlds, it's you roll to hit, then you roll to see if you deal damage. And basically how it works is um, it's it's a lot simpler because once you roll, say, for example, you're shooting a pistol at someone that deals 2d6 damage. You roll your 2d6, add them together, compare it to their toughness. If it exceeds their toughness, they get stunned. If it exceeds their toughness by four or more, they automatically get wounded. And then every additional four is another wound. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. I wasn't Most. even I wasn't even thinking about that, but that's not too different from how uh, I was doing it in in the system that I'm designing. I I wanted exceeding their my equivalent of toughness, um, exceeding that by a certain amount would just start adding more and more damage. So it's kind of like critical hits, basically that it gets more yeah. effective. Yeah, and the nice thing is, is they they have a system for handling critical hits with Savage Worlds that I think is pretty. Um, you know, pretty intuitive where basically, you know, if you're shooting someone, the baseline, the baseline point that you want to be is four. If you can roll higher than a four on, if you can roll four or higher on something, you're good. You've succeeded in what you're doing for the most part. Naturally, just like with any role playing game, there's going to be certain elements involved in the narrative that are going to change things based on the situation at hand. But four is the baseline for the most part. Melee combat's a bit of an exception because you're going based against your opponent's parry score. But if you're shooting someone, you know, like again, we'll say you've got a pistol that deals 2d6 damage. You shoot an enemy and you roll an 8. Well, you've exceeded that 4 by an additional 4. So for critical, that means you critically hit. You had a critical success. Their thing, every time you critically success, which is every time you exceed a point value by 4, you add an extra D6 to what you're rolling for damage. Oh, wow. So it's, it's. That's a, that's a serious crit. Yeah. And it adds a little bit more, but D6 is the average die because your stuff can go up to a D12. So D6 is your baseline. It goes ranging from, I believe everything at base when you're building a character starts at a D4 minus two. And then it just goes D4 minus 2, D4, D6, D8, D10, D12, and finishes at D12 plus 2. Um, so D6 is your baseline in that game. So adding that extra D6 of damage is, you know, for example, something lighter like a pistol, you're adding an extra 50%. If you were shooting something like a bazooka, say, for example, just uh, deals like 2D10 damage, an extra D6 isn't going to add that much more. But it's a nice, simple system to which you don't have to think, oh, in D&D, if I'm dealing critical damage, I'm dealing double my weapon's damage. Mm-hmm. But they don't clarify, is that double dice? Is that... Right, because you roll for your damage, so... Exactly. So is it double the dice? Is it double what you rolled? Is it is your modifier added? Is it not added? Rarely have I seen that clarified in any edition of D&D really well. 
But with Savage Worlds, it's, it's easy. Oh, you critically hit once, add an extra D6. And, you know, see how much that takes it beyond their toughness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very thinking, simple. I'm, I'm definitely thinking of, I don't know if I've talked to anybody on these different discords and places with game designers, somebody who really embraced or enjoyed the idea of rolling for damage on top of the, the rolling to hit thing. And it's kind of shocking to me that Dungeons and Dragons still does that. Uh, not only does it slow things down, but it, you know, it, it's just this uh, extra kick for those who roll successfully and they're in this critical moment. And, you know, the drama of the at the table of whether you can finally move the scene forward by killing a certain enemy. And like you said, that the fight takes so long that every time you beat somebody, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. And like, OK, good, we can we can move on to target this guy now or we can do whatever. Then. If you hit, but then you just roll a tiny amount of damage, it's just sort of this awkward moment at the table that nobody enjoys. It's like if you just averaged out between the highest and the lowest possible values and you just made that the standard value that you do every time you hit or something, at least then a hit would always feel the same amount of good. Hitting and then doing Mm -hmm. almost nothing is just this bizarre feeling and... It has nothing to do with the character's defenses. It has nothing to do with, like, you already overcame their AC, so why does my attack not do more damage or something? It's uh, it's a bizarre thing from a design point of view. Yeah, yeah, it's there's definitely some issues with it, and you can start to see as when you compare it to other systems, as as ubiquitous as Dungeons and Dragons is, and then you know. Pathfinder for quite a while before 5e came out was in the same boat of being the top dog. Is as ubiquitous as the D20 systems are, the, they do come with a fairly heavy amount of flaws. And I think it is, I think what it is that makes people so willing to overlook them is just the fact that the system's been around for so long and it's been tightened up over time, but some of those flaws are never going to fully go away. Yeah. And, the, and that issue of slowdown, I think I personally think it's one of those ones that's never going to fully go away unless you pare things down so much that it's not going to be as big an issue. But at that point, you're probably going to make some of the people who like those systems pretty unhappy because they're going to likely feel it's too different from what it used to be. So yeah. it's, that, it's that delicate balancing act of can we simplify this to make things snappier without changing it so much that we alienate the people who like what's already there? Yeah, and i, I got to say I would respect them more if they bit the bullet and actually, you know, upset a couple people. But, I mean, who would really... I don't. I really don't think even Dungeons & Dragons players would, would really complain if they changed that. It's It's not a beloved part of the system. It is just a traditional part of the system. And Yeah. Um, and there's something something interesting that I found over the years too, um, because I obviously I played more than just D&D. You know, I played Savage Worlds, but I've I've put my hand in a bunch of systems over the years, tried a few things out, a lot of things I would like to play more of, but you know it's that eternal struggle of finding the players. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that I was not never really the biggest fan of, but that I did find elements that I enjoyed in were the D20 Star Wars systems that Wizards of the Coast put out. Um, I believe 
I can't remember which edition it was. I think it was the third edition of the Star Wars system that included, um, they included two different health bars. And the reason they did this, this was one of those things that, you know, at first glance would make someone, might make one think, well, that's just going to add more blow to the system. But the thing that ended up being surprisingly really nice about it was the first health bar, I believe, was listed as your vitality. And then the second health bar was your HP, which this was a flaw with the way they chose their terminology, if I remember it correctly, is instead of constitution, your constitution score was your vitality. Huh. But your vitality points were basically like stamina. Oh. And so it, it, it was, it was, it ended up being confusing because they used the two, if I remember it correctly in that edition, they used the two words to mean both things. I could be wrong in that. I might be misremembering like how they uh, laid it out, but the core element of the, the two health point system is you would have the one set of HP that was your, you know, your standard set that when you got hit, that's what got drained. And when it reached zero, you would be unconscious. The second pool of health was equal to your constitution score. Mm -hmm. And if you got critically hit or were unconscious and damaged, that's when that health pool drained. So basically it was meant to represent the first one, which is essentially your stamina represented you just barely dodging or taking flesh wounds, becoming tired over the course of the fight. And then the other one was your actual health. Which that's interesting because I've I've definitely heard people make the argument that that's what HP is supposed to represent, even in Dungeons and Dragons, normally and stuff is this idea of that you know because there's something silly about you know being on one HP and still being as effective as you were at full health and there's different ways in which mm -hmm. it starts to become a little bit weird. Um, how it works and people say, well, no, it's basically like your stamina or your luck or your, you're not actually getting hit every time. Yeah. And, and it sounds like this system is trying to make that official, but using very yeah, confusing and terms. That, that's, yeah. The, the, the terminology, that was one of the things that I remember all the star Wars D20 games that I played did struggle a bit with some of their terminology because it was all made by Wizards of the Coast, it was all run on the D20 system, yet some of the stats, for whatever reason, they changed the name of. It was generally easy to figure it out. Constitution became vitality. Dexterity became agility. But it was just one of those pointless changes that had the potential to sort of leave players scratching their heads, especially if you had another stat that had a similar name. Um, but the one thing that I remembered... The one big change I remember that making is it added a greater sense of lethality to the game. That was something that in early levels of 3.0, 3.5, and Pathfinder, you could feel some of that lethality. Right. But as the characters got stronger, you know, naturally that starts tapering off. And for as powerful as some of the end game enemies could be, generally speaking, characters could get powerful enough that even some of the most powerful endgame enemies, they're not going to put up the amount of challenge you might expect them to. Yeah, and players also, even if things were theoretically getting more lethal, not less lethal, 
um, they optimize for healing and for damage absorption, and they will always try to, you know, use every opportunity they get to be more survivable. So it would have to become exponentially more lethal in order for yeah. to actually stay on par with the exponentially more effective group. And that's sort of always been a bizarre thing I've noticed with with high-level D&D campaigns that I've seen and heard people talk about where everybody actually becomes nostalgic for the early levels of, you know, actually being afraid of a little group of enemies approaching or something and, you know, the the sense of risk. It's like you could actually just be bored as you're fighting gods and, you know, multi-realm demons and stuff, and you're, like, yawning as you, you know, have these endless battles that take long and they drag out because everybody has such high defense or or whatever, but it doesn't have that sense of impact. Are you saying that in this Star Wars game, um, even at higher levels, you feel like things can suddenly just, like, turn against you and lethality remains a big factor? Yeah, when they had that system in, and I think they kept it into the Saga system as well, but I, I don't remember too well, which I should because I played it relatively recently, like within the last year or so. But that system basically made made it so that, because it, it wasn't just an issue of, oh, you get knocked down to zero, then you start taking that damage. Like I mentioned, when you got critically hit, that was the health pool that was hit. And the weapons in the Star Wars systems did a lot more damage than the ones in D&D, mm. which makes sense. You've got laser guns and, you know, like laser machine guns and starships, all this stuff. These weapons are going to do more damage than a sword or a bow will. So, Well, and I even, even just thematically, you know, if you know anything about the Star Wars movies, it's like they take it pretty seriously in the movies and in the fiction yeah. when somebody gets hit. So it would, it would make more sense to represent that in the game mechanically, even if you could make the argument that you have, uh, you know, uh, Star Trek, you know, phasers that don't actually <laughs> kill people, or you have, like, X-Men cartoon yeah. lasers that just knock you on your butt, and, you know, you don't... <laughs> it's just like... Well, no, I mean, even, even Star Wars did have stun settings on their guns, non-lethal settings for their blasters. You know, we see you see that in the first movie. They shoot when they shoot Leia in the back. They're mm. using the stun setting to right, knock right. her unconscious. Good point. And they reflect that in the game too. Uh, but the thing that I remember, I remember one instance that ended up being really crazy. Is it really kind of clarifies with a system like that? Not only does it clarify the downside of a system like Five E, where the lethality issue is far, far more tapered than in previous editions. Outside of early levels, it is hard to go down and actually die in 5e outside of some narrative moment where the GM can't look at it and say with any sort of reasonable reaction, you could survive that. Uh, But the Star Wars thing... So the upside with that is it keeps that lethality throughout because any critical hit could potentially be lethal. But then you get that downside of, well, how good is that going to feel for the player if the GM just happens to get lucky and roll really well and kill them in one shot, which happened one time when I was running the Star Wars game. Mm. In the first session, I set up 
just a simple infiltration mission for my buddy. It was a one-on-one game. And, you know, he wanted to do something a little more, you know, smuggler themes. So, like, all right, you know, I'll set up a simple infiltration thing. He's going to scope out this warehouse to look for some rare goods that his client wants to buy. Classic, so he's going to yeah. and steal it. Yeah. Classic, classic warehouse raid. Well, the first fight he got in, I just happened to roll lucky with a guard. I rolled a natural 20 and it was in plain sight. So it wasn't like I could say, oops, I didn't <laughs> roll that. I rolled a natural 20, and then I rolled two points off of max damage with his blaster rifle, which killed him in one shot. (laughs) And so in that moment, it was sort of, it was one of those revealing moments where you see the obvious downside to a system like that. Mm. Then you've got, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got 5e, where after a certain point, due to certain, certain spells, certain abilities... And the relative ease with which you can roll to get to make successful death saves when you're at the point that you're dying, it's hard to kill players in that game. Not that I'm saying the GM should be striving to kill their players, but without a realistic threat, a plausible threat, that's something that is one of these timeless conundrums of role playing games is that you want players to get invested, you want them to be attached and and if their character dies, you you want them to feel it, and you it should be this potent moment that you know basically proves that you know this whole time you haven't just been getting coddled and have plot armor that just protects you no matter what. If if somebody yeah. actually dies, that means that they could have died the entire game, and that they should be you know thankful or congratulate themselves for lasting that long or something. But at the same yeah, time, exactly. if you just die off of especially just one hit or one bad roll or something, and it wasn't like a series of cascading mistakes or something, then that just feels like you got robbed. Um, yeah. And I mean, it feels that way for, for everybody except for the most callous GMs out there, which sadist. not many of them exist. You know, there's, there's those horror stories. Um, you know, especially, especially you read the horror stories of, you know, uh, some of the dungeons that Gary Gygax set up and then people playing those afterwards and some of those GMs running games for their players becoming sadistic and then learning the hard fact afterwards that that was a bad idea because you pissed all your players off and now they don't want to play with you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, mo- most of the time that's not going to feel good for anyone at the table. Most GMs are going to see that and they're going to think, well, this sucks. He just up and died. And I, it makes every GM I've met that's had that happen has said that those situations make them feel legitimately guilty because they feel like they robbed their player of the chance to play because of one bad role. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think from like, if you had advice for a game designer who was trying to tweak their system and that's a constant conversation in, in game design discussions between designers is how lethal is like, do you want to always have like, you can't die in one hit so that there's always at least a round or two for a friend to revive you or something, or does that cheapen the, the, the threat, the credible threat of a, you know, especially a big, you know, scary monster. It sounds like you, this guy, even though he's low level, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that, a sort of generic enemy could kill him in one hit, but you still would want to have 
you know, terrifying monsters that even just by looking at them, you're like, well, we should probably not even fight this guy until we're, you know, totally maxed out level or something that, you know, getting into, into that credible threat territory, what feature would you like to see or what system have you played that sort of helped counterbalance that? Cause I feel like the death saving throws and the, you know, in D and D you'd have, don't you have to, lose twice as much as your maximum health in order to die in one hit or something like that, something crazy. In 3rd and 3.5 edition, what you had to do was go into negative health equal to your constitution score. If you did that, you died. Pathfinder, I believe, changed it to negative health equal to twice your constitution score, Mm. which... I mean, it, it's a workable system. It's it's fine, but you know, with that system, also you had ish, the the option of death from massive damage. Where oh, if you took half of your total health in a single hit, you have to make a Constitution or Fortitude save, and if you fail, you die. You know, just to represent the fact that there are big things out there. The Star Wars system was trying to replicate that with the second health pool, but. I, I don't think either of those systems really quite gets it. I think the death saves are a good way to go about it. Um, I just think that 5e made it a little too simple. And I think actually the system so far in that regard for an HP-based system that has gotten the closest to getting that right in regards to once you get down to that point that you're about to die or you risk dying, is Pathfinder 2, which is, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of it from what I've seen, but it's it's got a few things that work. That's the new Pathfinder. Is it even out yet? Yeah. Yeah, it came out, um, I, think, uh, I think, last month. Oh, okay. Um, but I, I did some of the playtest stuff for it, too, so I got to kind of experience their death save system. And it's very similar to 5e, and at first glance... Um, and in the earlier iterations, too, it was one that when you looked at it, it especially in the earliest iterations, it was like 5e's but easier because you made four death saves instead of just three. In 5e, you either pa- you have to pass three death saves to live or fail three of them to die. Right, yep. And you basically just keep rolling them until you succeed. If you roll a 20, you make two successes. If you roll a 1, it's two failures. Uh, Pathfinder 2 pretty much kept this exact same thing, except what they changed is, for one, you are not rolling a constitution roll. It's a straight roll. You need to roll 11 or higher on a d20. If you do that, you succeed. If it's 10 or lower, you fail. So it's a 50-50 chance. But as you get more wounded, the modifier will make it more difficult. The closer you are to dying, less chance there are, is of living. Um... Like 5e, if you t- get healed in um, when you're in that state, you get back up. But what they changed is you carry over wounds from that. So the death saves you've taken, if you have failed, let's say, one death save before your cleric buddy heals you up and gets you back on your feet with two health, and you go down again, you automatically go down with that one death save you failed still there Ah. because you have the wound. So it hit a nice middle ground where you could potentially go down 
and die right away if you had three wounds on you already and then got brought up and hit again. So that's interesting. I think they, yeah, I think they hit a nice balance in it with that. Uh, it still kind of has the problem of the whole death from massive damage thing, which for, for me personally, it's like, I don't think the whole hit point system is ever going to go away because it's kind of intrinsic to any RPG at this point, really, or mo- I shouldn't say any, but a vast majority of them from video games to tabletop games are uh, hit points have been there from the beginning. There'll be some incarnation of it, even if there's a different twist on it or a different. Yeah. 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 I mean, even, even if, you know, Savage Worlds with the three, wo- with the stunned condition and then the three wounds, you could basically say, Oh, that's your four hit point. But, um, you know, in terms of like a, a larger hit point pool, like you would see in, you know, Pathfinder or D&D. I don't think that's ever going to really fully go away, but for me personally, I, I think that systems like Savage Worlds where it's wounds or systems that keep the numbers down to a smaller scope, like what you'll see in a lot of the OSR systems, I think they tend to handle that better because since everything's a little bit smaller in scope, not only is it easier to track, mm-hmm. faster to track, but that sense of lethality, that sense of risk tends to be more present and more at the forefront of your mind. I remember actually when I hit my first hundred subs on my YouTube channel, I ran a live play live stream with a couple friends of mine, a couple of which run other YouTube channels. Two of them are actually fellow minds users also. And we played a system, I don't know if you might have heard of it, but it's a system called Maze Rats, which was an independently created system. No, I never heard of it. it it's it's kind of neat. It's just, it's a 13-page pamphlet. The first two, or I think it's the first three pages, are all the players need to make their characters. And the the gimmick they have is basically, if you want, you can create the character entirely at random by rolling 2d6 for every category, because each category has an option of, you know, like a six-box grid with six options in it. So you roll 2d6, you pick your box, and then you pick the option in the box. And you can create a totally random character right down to their personality and appearance that way, Hmm. which is kind of neat. It's novel. But the game runs on a low HP system. I think at level one, you have... 4 HP. So it's not that hard to die, and it's a 2D6 system. So I ran that for my friends for my uh, anniversary, spe- or not my anniversary, my 100 subscriber special. Right. And um, actually, the session I ran was the first, uh, from the compendium we mentioned earlier that I'm working on, was the first adventure that I actually finished putting oh, nice. together in that compendium. So that was kind of my test run of a fully independent system using that adventure to see will this work. And it it went really well. Players really enjoyed it. Um, But when it came to the final battle, it ended up working out well because it wasn't this huge, it wasn't this battle with a huge scope. It was the three players against, you know, three monsters, one one of which was the big bad, two of which were minions. And Maze Rats is a system that really rewards creativity. The GMs are very much encouraged to say yes when their players do something. 
but to bear in mind what sort of punishments could come from doing something. And one of the examples was uh, my friend Luke. He was playing sort of a roguish character, and as they were fleeing the place they were fleeing to try and escape the, the big bad initially before she cut them off, he turned around to give the other two party members a better chance of escaping and literally just turned around and clotheslined both of the creatures chasing them. <laughs> and so mechanically the there was something in place for that. Yeah. It's, it, they don't, that's the thing with maze rats. It's a very mechanics like system. And so basically the idea would be that, you know, based on what your characters are doing, you as a GM want to consider, okay, what sort of role would be the most appropriate here? So, for me, it was a two-part thing. Make an agility roll, you know, versus their own agility rolls to see who reacts faster. Sure. And then, so he succeeded on that. And then at that point, it's a strength check to see if you can actually knock these two things over by slamming your, like, forearms into their throats. And he happened to succeed. So it, it, a lot of it is basically built around, you know, um, competing tests. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that speaks to, uh, I mean, I'll let you finish your, your story first and then I'll, I'll comment on that. Yeah. So the downside would have been that if the other two players both kept running, he would have now had to deal with these two creatures once they got up by himself. And lucky for him, the other two players didn't both keep running. The one who was built more like your traditional fighter kept going to sort of square off against the big bad once they were cut off while the other one was playing something of a caster, which spellcasting is definitely an interesting... There's an interesting element for spellcasting in that game, too, which we can get into later. I think you would find it kind of uh, kind of interesting, even though it's very unusual, mechanically speaking. Yeah, I'm always curious to hear about uh, what indie designers get up to because they're so unconstrained by uh, anything else. I always like to see... Your- it's- it is easily the most unconventional spell system I've ever seen in a game that yet at the same time is pretty satisfying and fun because it, it leaves a lot of freedom to everyone involved. But the player who was ostensibly our spellcaster stayed behind to help Luke fight these two guys. And so it basically turned, uh, it turns out that the way it all works is you have to consider in your head what's going on because it's the narrative that's driving everything. And this is true of most tabletop games to a point, but especially in Maze Rats, you need to consider what's going on in the narrative. What are the specifics that I can glean from the choices my players are making so that I can figure out what the most reasonable reaction from the creatures I'm putting against them would be. Yeah. And it led, it didn't, Excuse me. It lends itself to a level of lethality that is pretty surprising for a game of such relatively small scope. Especially the fact that, you know, the monsters, like I said, don't have that much health themselves. When it got to the point that the players started actively fighting the main monster in this adventure, the fight only lasted about five rounds. Like, with her directly, but so much damage was being dealt, dished around, and so much craziness was happening that everyone involved in it, myself included, even 
like we were all kind of on the edge of our seats. <laughs> and since this is also a system that rewards creativity, I really wanted to give the spellcaster a chance to reward his creativity because he, for obvious reasons, opted to kind of remain back. But he had a companion with him based on the effects that he got from the spells, from the spell that we put together for him, which was essentially, it was essentially like a little living bundle of water and ivy. And he would basically command this thing. I wrote rules so you can give it a single command every round on your turn, and it'll fulfill the command to the best of its ability. Sure. So he basically said, I want this thing to start grabbing bricks from the masonry that's falling away from this, like, you know, collapsing cliffside house and just start chucking these bricks at, at this monster as hard as, as hard as he can. He, he rolled a critical success. He rolled double sixes on the attack roll. He rolled real high with the damage. And he ended up getting a killing blow that just to make it as satisfying as I could for him, I described it as he hurls this brick from the far end of this house, smack into this creature's head, smashing its head clean off. And this thing was about to kill both of his other party members. If he hadn't succeeded, they all probably would have died. So it, it, it worked really well was just for a very simple system just the amount of freedom it provides to someone who's willing to kind of think out of the box and be creative makes it amazingly elegant for a 13-page PDF system. Well, that's it's, that's exactly what I was going to point out. Is is what, It's almost a paradox of game design and RPG design that I didn't appreciate for a very long time as I was mulling over what I was going to do in my system. I thought that the more rules I added the more I was allowing players to explore and express themselves and to choose options, right? Because you, in your mind as a designer, you think they don't have any options unless I give them options. But it's actually the opposite. It's every time you give them options, you are limiting them to those options. And a freeform system, which I'm not saying this is a freeform system, but it's it's... Got to a point for me where I had to change my idea of role playing itself to be basically the whole thing is a negotiation and you wouldn't think of it as like a business negotiation, but it is in the sense that if you can make a case for why something should work a certain way, then it's, it's the other person's obligation to either agree or make a counter case and say, actually, you know, your character you know, is wearing very heavy armor. So it wouldn't be that you could, you know, jump that high or whatever it is. You have to actually start paying attention to the details of the scene and the context and the characters. And so having less rules makes things a negotiation as opposed to a mechanical rule. And I've started to more and more favor um, having sort of principles and guidelines for for situations and how things would be resolved and letting that core couple of rules suffice. Like you were saying, you know, it's up to you to decide is that the dexterity check or you could have, you know, probably picked something else to interpret his action as being these contests have to take place. Um, but it, it's one of these bizarre things that's counterintuitive as a game designer where you're thinking I have to add more stuff or else nothing will happen, but actually people will be creative. And you said it rewards creativity, but in a way it just sort of 
gets out of the way of people's natural creativity when they're role playing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually probably a better way to put it with uh with maze rats. And you you were mentioning too uh, just a moment ago how, you know, it just sort of leaves things kind of very open to sort of leave an option there and sort of stand out of the way and just be like, hey, you know, we're giving you this element. Negotiate. Figure out what you can do with that. That's kind of the core element behind the way spells work, which is it's interesting. Because way, so the way spells work in Maze Rats is um, as you're you know, leveling your character, and the max level in this game is uh, seven, which is it's a little unusual, but every, I think, odd-numbered level, you get a choice of, you know, the type of thing you're going to pick. You can pick from one of four different sets of skills. You can choose to boost your attack, or you can choose to gain a spell slot to cast one spell. Okay. Every time you have, if you have a spell slot, then every day, like in-game day, after you've gone to sleep and woken up, you roll 2d6 on the spell generation table. And that will tell you, that will give you two keyword groups to pick from. And there are three keyword groups, I believe. I've got the I'm, document open. I'm already here. liking the sound of this. <laughs> yeah. So, sounds like you things get, get pretty choice. wild. Yeah, so you get, okay, yeah, it was, uh, it's six, actually, six different, um, six different little charts that you can pick from, each of which has six columns with six choices in them. So, it's a lot of possible options for your spells. So you get, there are physical effects, physical elements, physical forms, ethereal effects, ethereal elements, and ethereal forms. So the first thing you do is you roll your 2d6 to figure out which combination of you're getting of between two of those six. Um, and then you roll 2d6 again to figure out the first keyword from the first option. So if I had, for example, ethereal element plus a physical form, I'd first roll for an ethereal element, which could come up as... I'll just read off the first six they have. Ash, Chaos, Distortion, Dream, Dust, Echo. And then I would do the same for physical form. And again, in that first list, Altar, Armor, Arrow, Beast, Blade, Cauldron. So pretty much you roll the D6s and you get in order your spell name. So it could be like Ash Cauldron. And then the game tells you, take that name, give it to your, take that name as the GM, Think for a few minutes, what sort of a spell could an Ash Cauldron be? <laughs> right. And if your player has an idea, let them tell you the idea. And if you think that makes sense, let them do that too. So I mentioned how my friend who was playing the caster character, he had a little, like, water and ivy elemental acting as his companion. Right. The two... Uh, the two keywords he ended up getting were animated and wave. And so I told him initially, he's like, all right, so here's what you can do with the spell thing. You can cast a cone up to however many feet in front of you of water that will animate inanimate objects within it for a certain number of rounds for you. Okay, yeah. To which he suggested, could I cast this on the ground and create sort of a little companion? 
Like, is there anything on the ground that I could use this on? All right, well, there's, there's, it's overgrown. There's a lot of ivy and there's like broken walkways. Well, what are you thinking? I just want to cast it on the ground, like right next to me and make like a little companion to help me fight. Sure. So right. it's, it's, it's completely open to interpretation then. Yeah, exactly. And since it's such a rules-like system, it, it really lends well to being open to interpretation. And then, which and then in terms of some really wild. Exactly. And then, it, and then it's also would have to be, this is the beauty of, and I try to tell designers this is like, if you really sort of simplify things and always force things to go back to the first principles of your system, like, um, like your just core stats and a couple of, you know, a really simple core, then you don't need big complex stat blocks for things you would improvise either. If you want improvisation, you need to streamline it enough that people feel good about improvising instead of feeling stressed out about it. And so I'm guessing that when you essentially just created a new creature on the spot with this water ivy creature, it was not too difficult for you to then say, what would a realistic strength be for this character? What would the character be capable of? Because, again, the system is so simplified that it's basically on a case-by-case basis. You're, you're negotiating what this thing would be capable of, and everything yeah. is in play. Everything is um, adjustable and open to interpretation so that, you know, for it to throw a rock, I might have said as a GM, it's just water and ivy. It's not strong enough to throw anything that's heavy. But, you know, in your your interpretation, it was strong enough to do that, and so you could you know, have it throw these bricks across the room and stuff. And that makes it more subjective, which I guess you could, some people might not like, but definitely if you're creative people and you're open to sort of having these discussions and not, not needing this sort of video game-esque number-driven optimization game, and you just want to be spontaneous and, and freeform, um, that kind of system where you need to be able to interpret and go back to the sort of simple rules and say, okay, is there a, a, an effect for, you know, fire damage as opposed to regular damage or something? And if there is, then we'll use that rule because fire is involved in this case. And it doesn't need to be a fireball does X things. You're just always referencing this sort of handful of rules that do exist and then applying them when they're, whenever they're relevant. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly that. Which then, you know... Like you say, you know, that, that, that can lead to a lot of subjectivity, which means potential inconsistency in the experience. But that's one of the things, at least from Ace Rats, that I think the designer was smart on is he very early on encourages, you know, people to consider this as a system where you really encouraged to try and say yes, but figure out what sort of reaction might come from saying yes. Everything's going to have an opposite reaction. Everything's going to have a potential downside that, you know, sometimes the players might not think about. Sometimes you as the GM might not think about. So it leads to a lot of people ending up being real surprised sometimes, which is fun. I, I, I remember too, funny enough, just a little anecdote. The shortest tabletop game I ever played was Maze Rats and it was. Last year, I had gone up to actually visit my friend Luke. He and I live in, we both live in California, but he lives up north. I live down south. So drove up to visit him, and uh, 
you know, I brought printout of Maze Rats to play. We gathered, you know, him, my wife, and uh, one of our other friends together. The session lasted all of ten minutes because <laughs> because our friend Mike decided that instead of instead of you know talking with the locals that they ran into, which were lizard men in this particular case. He said, I see beast men. It's time to purge. <laughs> and within, te- within, within 10 minutes, because Luke joined in and my wife was like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to like pick a fight with, with people that we just met or willing to talk to us within 10 minutes of starting this game. They both ended up dead <laughs> just because it just so happened to be that the trio of lizard folk they attacked. Well, they were the shamanistic leaders of their tribes and all powerful spellcasters. And they didn't know this. So they Now they be got, honest, did you make that up just to spite them or was that already? No, a- that was that was because I what I did is I actually took a um I took a pre made module from elsewhere and converted it for this for <laughs> right. maze rats. And it noted these three are the, you know, high shaman of this tribe. <laughs> right. And so I was like, well, I can't rightly say that the three high shaman of a spiritual lizard men tribe living in a magic cave wouldn't know magic. So I rolled on the tables and right. they ended up, <laughs> they ended up getting, they ended up getting melted by a spray of acid, swarmed with, uh, necrotic locusts. And then I believe their bones were burned. So they weren't coming back. <laughs> My wife bid them good day and, left the cave so she wouldn't end up getting killed. But it's just, it's that sort of thing where, you know. It kind of speaks to the old school mentality in general, from what I understand of the OSR movement and people who are trying to harken back to the original kind of rules light, but still very um, challenge driven sort of experience where you have to be creative uh, it sounds like this is a way better system. I would much prefer playing Maze Rats over first edition D and D, but I love the idea of those tables to roll on and things like that too. But yeah, it's it's fun. It's very fun. But the uh, the idea is kind of that uh, you know you don't need rules. You just need players who are willing to work together and sort of be fair and and negotiate. Although they don't use that term and. Um, I'm curious, I wanted to get, I wanted to get into your, uh, college, uh, education. You said you had actually taken a, a course in game design yourself. I actually, uh, for two years, two and a half years about, I went to college for game design. So what, where, uh, maybe it doesn't matter where you went, but I am curious what drew you in and what the, the idea was initially there's you wanted to be a like a video game career developer it was, or it was yeah that was my dream job since i was 10 years old originally was oh i want to go into video game design i want to learn how to make video games and when i moved down to uh, the san diego area from mountains where i lived when i was a kid i and I'd gotten to the age where i was getting to college i was looking around at the uh, the community colleges nearby so, you know, figured I can get the same classes at these community colleges. I can get going to the university. And then if and when I go to university, save a lot of money. 
And it just so happened that two of the community colleges in my area offered courses in game design. One of them offered a single semester introductory course, and the other was an actual two-year accredited course. Right. So I, I took both of them. And I my hope was, because that was the thing I wanted to do with that, is I wanted to learn the actual design aspects, like you know, rules of design, how to create interesting encounters and stuff, or at Absolutely, least yeah. how to start thinking about that stuff. What they don't tell you is that's not what they teach you. <laughs> so I will give some absolute credit to the two professors that I had, and it actually turned out that both of them were working between both of these colleges. And they took it upon themselves to alter their course to use their own experience to kind of try and teach a little bit of that thought process. You know, it, it was a bit clumsy because, you know, none of the, neither of them had been career teachers for very long, but they had worked in the industry. So they were kind of trying to impart the lessons they learned from that regard in the industry. Sure. Cl- clumsy as it was. So that took probably about 35%, maybe 40% of our class time with that. And the first semester class was focused on what if I remember correctly, what they call the pre-treatise, which is essentially where you're putting together your pitch for a new game. So that class focused on all of us coming together into groups of three or four. Every one of us would share an idea we had. We'd all kind of talk back and forth and figure out, all right, which idea do we want to make as our pitch at the end? And then together throughout, we would learn how to create the treatise, you know, which steps needed to go into that, what sort of additional assets we would need for that in terms of art assets, things like that. So it's like a production angle to come at it from. Yeah, it was, uh, for that first class, it was a production angle. And that, you know, that did give some insight into considering, you know, because you're not at the point where you're actually, that wouldn't have been the point where you're developing the systems. It's where you're considering the overall focus of the game. But at that point, too, you also kind of want to focus and consider you know, what, what is it about this game that's going to make it stand out to the others? You know, for, for my group, for example, we presented a survival horror game. So our thought process had to be, okay, every one of us, just funny enough, by pure chance, every one of us came up with a wildly different angle on a survival horror game as what we presented to each other. None of us had pre-planned that. It just turned out that way. One of our guys ended up going very sci-fi original movie with it. Another's was a little more, you know, generic zombies. And it ended up being my pitch that got picked because I was playing on the idea of you know, dreams and nightmares coming to life. And they, they liked that idea. So we had to consider then as we were developing our pitch and the idea, well, what would make this game both in mechanical and stylistic ways that we can discuss in the proposal, how could we possibly make the standout versus Silent Hill or Resident Evil? Yeah. You know, the, the, the big survival horror games of the time. So that was something we all had to consider. After that point, though, as I went into the later years of that, and, you know, every one of the other four classes I took was about 40% discussing design elements, and then the other 60% was learning how to use 3D Studio Max or Maya. Huh. So it was, yeah, it really ultimately wasn't so much a game design course as it was, you know, 
as, as they were introductory courses to 3D modeling programs that were used in yeah, game design. And that's bizarre because it, there's so that that's assuming so much about what kind of games you might want to be designing. Yeah, uh, it was very. It was definitely a bit disappointing, and it's like. Like I said, I, I give credit to my professors for making an attempt to bring those design elements in there, but going through those courses and especially learning, you know, having that hard realization of like, oh, so these courses ultimately af- beyond that first semester are quite literally textbook courses for 3D Studio Max or Maya. Oh man, that would, that's that would drive me crazy. I, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's it sucked, and so at that point, I kind of I kind of realized like I need to start digging deeper, see what I can find. And so as I as I dug, I did my research, sort of looked around. I got in contact actually again with the student that I took that first semester with, who pitched the sci-fi original style uh, horror game. Because he was actually a former designer, game designer who worked back in like the eighties, the eighties and the early nineties. Oh wow. And he had gone out of the business. I think he went out of the industry for a little while and he wanted to go back in, but they said, Oh, you know, well, they required him to get at least an associate's degree to move up in the ranking, in the rankings in his business. So that's why he went back. So I reached out to him again and I asked him, you know, hey, did you ever get that, you know, get that degree? And he had, I asked him where he went. He told me he went around to a couple of other schools in the area. Um, one of them, I, I don't recall the name of one of them, but one of them was one of those ones that I'm sure you remember back in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, when they would have the advertisements on, where they'd advertise, you know, Come to this school and learn to design games so you can get paid to play video games. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah. Total scams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and this this was an industry insider who's telling me this. Like he went there, he took he to check it out and sort of see for himself because he figured, oh, you know, I mean they offer the degree program. It's directly in with the industry, so this should be easy for me. Turned out it was the same sort of thing. They're teaching you how to use the programs and at these schools start teaching it to you badly. So he dipped out there within a couple of weeks and got his money back. Luckily, oh, luckily. that's good. Yeah, yeah. He, he was, he was really lucky that he was able to do that. And I believe he ended up down here. The one that is really highly regarded is, uh, we have one of the locations of, uh, the art Institute down here in the San Diego area. Um, so he ended up actually going there. I think he told me he was able to get it, you know, a decent cut back, cut off of the, um, tuition by working as a teacher's aide in the game design course since he had the experience. Hmm. So he said that that was pretty much the best one they did in terms of teaching design fundamentals. And I learned later on as I was looking into, you know, talking with people in the industry, looking into, you know, the jobs and work. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the game company, the behemoth, uh, the people behind castle crashers. Yeah. 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 Well, one of, one of my friends, she actually works for them and for battle block theater, she was their head designer. Oh, wow. So around that time when I was taking those classes, right, I just finished those classes. I reached out to her, spoke with her and to see if, 
you know, she could help me kind of get in at a ground level job there and sort of work my way up to get the industry experience, which ultimately didn't happen. But I, th- I think in the end, with the way the industry made its turn, that was for better. But one of the things I learned is you know, I got to talk a little bit with their bosses, and that was something they told me is the one school that they really look at, or really the two schools that they, they looked at a lot was they liked what Full Sail University was doing because that, that focused a lot on the design stuff, and particularly for being a San Diego-based company, the Art Institute of California. Problem is, is those schools are oppressively expensive. Yeah, yeah. Most people can't get into them. And every other game design program out there from anyone I've talked to that hadn't gone to some place that was legit and specialized in that it was the same experience I had. They taught you how to use the program, so that was about it. So And that's worse the, than I would have I would have guessed. I'm not a big fan of uh of college university stuff unless you like really know exactly what you're going for, like the STEM fields or something like that, and it's a very practical yeah thing where there's your degree really means something and nobody can deny it. Um, but man, I wouldn't have guessed that it was that basic. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thoroughly disappointed when I, when I learned that firsthand and, you know, in my time there, I, I spent quite a while going to those schools because at the time I was going, I, I kind of drew a, drew the lucky lottery, so to speak at that time when I went to college because it was at a time when um, Southern California, at least, started having kind of an education funding boom, which meant that the curriculum costs for the community colleges in particular were slashed fairly significantly. Right. When my very first semester that I went there was only $26 per unit for the entire semester. And then the second semester, it went down to 21 per unit, which compared to SDSU was I think less than less than three percent or so of <laughs> what you would pay compared to one of the universities. Wow. You know, something something like that. It might it might I could easily be misremembered and unintentionally exaggerating, but you know, I'm talking like that sounds hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, it's like we're talking hundred fifty or two hundred dollars per semester to go to a Full schedule of classes. Yeah, so, I, you know what? In that case, it doesn't it doesn't sound like it would sting as much if even if there's disappointment, it wouldn't be this. Yeah, it's not a serious so, regret of, in the financial situation, but yeah. And so I was able to kind of experiment around a lot. I, I was lucky in that sense that I was able to experiment around a lot and try a lot of the different classes that related to the game design field because I also went into classes about, you know, 2D and 3D animation. I checked out fiction writing extensively, which you know, makes sense as, as uh, I believe I mentioned to you, I've, you know, I also write a web comic based off of uh, prior tabletop games. Right. Yeah. Some of my friends and I played. We should talk about um, your web comic and, and the idea of this compendium uh, a little bit more yet too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, but yeah, long story short, I took, I took quite a few classes kind of related to the game design aspect of things, like, in a bunch of ways. And, but ultimately, none of it ended up panning out because everything they taught you with the core classes themselves were so basic. They did not give enough, they just didn't give enough of a foundation at that time to really help someone get a job unless they were lucky enough to 
find one of the bigger companies like, you know, Sony, uh, Microsoft or, uh, Rockstar, I think is also down here. If they were hiring like a tester position, you could maybe get your foot in the door then, mm-hmm. but climbing the ladder in the industry is insanely hard, especially coming from a tester position. They don't like to move people up. So kind of a blessing in some ways that I didn't end up actually going in there. Yeah, I would say that too. I, it's the kind of thing design is such a multi-discipline thing. Um, it's, you really need to be a jack of all trades and then also have, I feel like you need to also, cause I, I was exactly the same way. I grew up wanting to be a video game designer from, you know, youngest age and, and, uh, you know, really looked into it and research as much as I could without going to university and got, wanted to try to build up a little bit of a portfolio by just collaborating with other, uh, people online that I met and th- everything was, it was sort of a very common pattern, I think, where, Everybody bites off more than they can chew and some guy, you know, knows how to 3D model, some guy knows how to code and, and you know, I'm sitting there trying to create something small enough that we can actually get it done, but even then it turns out to be too big and, and that was going to be sort of like my angle is I wanted to have something to show instead of a, a degree or something like that and be like, look, I can make good games with zero budget and, amateurs and stuff and it can still be fun but it's it's such a nightmare to try to collaborate with people especially um long distance and amateur stuff it was just that was a yeah yeah Uh, that's that's uh that's that's a different kind of waste of time but it did give me enough insight into the process of what doesn't work (laughs) and you know having failures that were like oh okay so that's why like just straight up puzzle games or you know, mobile game simplicity stuff, Flappy Bird kind of thing is like basically the the smartest way you can get into it is have such a basic dumb idea for a game that it's almost impossible to screw up. And then um, if you can get lucky with a, a concept that clicks or something, maybe you can get off the ground. But definitely studying video game and video game design gave me a, a bunch of insight that I would say is still useful. Um, but with shifting to tabletop, it definitely felt like I had to relearn a lot of things because you have so much more freedom and you don't have to worry about a budget really because if you want there to be a 10,000 foot dragon in your game, you just write a sentence that says that it's, there's no, <laughs> there's no budget involved. But, um, on the other hand, everything that you put into the game has to be learned by people. And so the more you add, the more you're burdening them with having to learn stuff. And so you, you can't, that's, that's kind of your budget is people's attention is the budget. And it's kind of an interesting dichotomy between those two. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a shame that that didn't end up helping you. But, um, I do like the sound, I do like the sound of what you, what else you're working on. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead. I'll get into that, uh, compendium a bit and then I can, you know, touch maybe a little bit on the webcomic after that. So, like I, like I said, the compendium, my goal with that is for it to be, you know, sort of universal, like that it can be used pretty much in, in any system as long as those systems can support the sort of, you know, setting and story ideas I'm throwing in there. And kind of my, overarching goal with it is to sort of provide a handful of uh, little adventures 
that could either just be used as a quick one shot to for a GM to set up and sort of have a framework in mind that they can, you know, build their little adventure within and kind of tag stats on the different elements of it, like different creatures and ideas. Right. You'd have to do a conversion process for whatever you're trying to integrate into the other system. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I, I include, you know, for, for example, with the one that I ran, uh, for my hundred sub special, I've got a couple, I do have a couple of, you know, random generating tables on there. I believe I've got like a couple of D8 length tables of random instances that can happen when you're in this place on top of brief descriptions of each of the rooms and parts that you can access in this little area that I set up for the core area of the adventure, what you can find in them in terms of items and creatures and what your chances are of finding these things potentially. Mm. And so my, my goal was basically to kind of just provide, you know, provide the descriptions, provide the area, the, the, the play box, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, sort of leave it to the GMs to set up the difficulty for themselves, to set up how they want to handle how certain creatures work and why, based on what either what narrative bits I put in there or what narrative bits they choose to change, and so on and so forth. So the yeah. hope there is that by keeping it non-specific it will be universal enough that a lot of people could get some use out of it, either for a quick one-shot or as a jumping-off point for their own adventure to sort of spark their creativity. And that, you know, it won't be something that is so completely absent of mechanical ideas that people look at it and say, well, I can't figure out how I'm going to ever put something like that and make Mm. it work with XYZ game. Right. Yeah, that's, it sounds to me like something that if you have experience with running games, like you think the way a, a GM or a dungeon master would think. And so you would have a better idea than I would probably for, you know, what are the real points that a, a GM struggles with when they're trying to create an adventure? And it's, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it would often just be mostly about the, the idea itself, the concepts and how the concepts fit together rather than actual details of implementing them. And often you want to give, don't you all often want to give a GM a lot of wiggle room on implementation because yes, they'll be familiar with the system. They got that part down completely. And the only question is what is, what makes this fun? What makes this interesting? And what, how does it all fit together into an experience? Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of what I had to consider. So, you know, I, I just brought, I opened up my uh, document for that adventure now so I can sort of pluck some examples. Uh, so pretty much my thinking of it when I set it up is how I sort of laid it out for myself. It ended up being five pages in uh, my word processor, about four and a half actually. But I pretty much set it up starting off with I put together the scenario, a bit of rumor and hearsay around it with, you know, some options that you can roll for as the GM to have your players, you know, figure out. Like rumor and hearsay, I gave eight different rumors that either the GM could pick from for the players to kind of hear at the start of this 
little campaign so they get a little insight into the world I've set up. Sure, like a little hook to get them interested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort of bring them in to what the story I had in my head was when I put this together so that they can sort of get that peek through the window and say, ooh, hey, I want to learn a little more about that and kind of try to figure it out from there. And then pretty much start off with that, the basic scenario, a note on the character, the NPC, who was kind of central to driving this scenario forward a little bit into the hands of the players, and then move into the first few locations they can encounter in the uh, in the actual area they'll be adventuring in. So, and then what I would do is within those descriptions of the rooms, I would include notes where, oh, uh, let me see if I can find which room I had. Uh, yeah, I had in this adventure, it was kind of a horror-themed adventure that was a bit Lovecraftian, and at some point... Uh, the players could go into this undersea cave that, like I mentioned, there was a cliffside house, really a cliffside mansion. Right. That was sitting on the sea cliff, and underneath it was a series of caves. Well, they could go into these caves, and one of the rooms they could discover was a sacrificial pit with an altar that kind of extended out on it. And on that altar would have been a dagger. It would have been real crude and kind of plain-looking, but if they had decided to use the dagger they would have learned that this dagger, you know, has an effect of compulsion on people that it cuts. Hmm. And I, I set it up. So basically the idea was people who are cut by the dagger are compelled to go to the nearest source of water they can and drown themselves. <laughs> and when they, the next night, they will raise as a drowned zombie, which are the oh. very first enemies that they fight in this. Very nice. So, that's kind of was my process. They were sort of thinking, how can I make interesting effects that are relatively easy to convert in a variety of systems that tie directly in with the setting that I'm providing people and would kind of hopefully pull people's interest into this scenario that I'm presenting them and trigger the creativity of people. Right. There's a thread that you can pull on there that, that if you keep pulling on it, you keep you know, ultimately you get to the big payoff in the end. Theoretically, they could abandon that, I suppose, but, um, yeah, it's, 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 that's probably a smart way of doing it is to, cause players love mysteries and they love, you know, the sense that there is more there if they just looked harder and rather than beating them over the head with some crisis or some thing that they have to deal with. And now you're, you're handcuffing them to this one, mission or something, um, I can totally see why that would be a, a compelling way to get people all the way to the end by just sort of having a, a theme that is interesting and wraps around, like you said, a horror kind of theme. So, yeah, I like that as an example. I, I can see how that would be very system agnostic to be, you know, you could easily run that in a Dungeons & Dragons kind of thing, and it doesn't involve yeah. space technology or anything, so it's not going to clash with fantasy setting but you could also do it in in a more modern thing if you just were in an area geographically that was um you know sort of like remote parts of the world today that are look like they're from the stone ages or <laughs> look like they're from medieval times when they're... yeah exactly and you know there, there are little notes in the setting as i put it together for you know the kind of 
the kind of place that this is in terms of its style and its appearance. And for me, what I had in my head when I was putting it together was, you know, sort of Victorian style, a mm-hmm. little bit gothic. But someone else who's reading about this could see it as something, you know, a little more recent than that, or possibly even a little older than that. They could go as far back as, you know, medieval or, you know, possibly even pre-medieval into different cultures and ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's kind of the idea is I want to put the threads in there and have them be defined enough that they spark the imagination and get the players and the GM to sort of reach out and start tugging and see what comes next. But, at the same time, strike that balance where they're not so overt in their descriptions that you can't make it fit in a setting that you want to play without having to, uh, or with having to do major sweeping changes. Yeah. So that would be the kind of thing that, I mean, I could see working in my system, which is kind of low fantasy and definitely want to have the option in my game to, allow for people to invent their own entire countries and maps and stuff. I don't have some sort of preset map of the world or anything like that. And it would be, um, yeah, mechanically, like what exactly a drowned zombie does or, you know, this, this boss at the end, what exactly they're capable of. A good system should be able to handle sort of a plug and play concept of you have a good idea that wasn't included in the material, you know, it shouldn't be that much work to just stat them and put them in as a, a functioning character. So, and that, that's, that would be yeah. something that you as a GM, you know, obviously you're creating the ideas for concepts or idea for adventures and, and concepts to, to try to hook people all the time anyway. So to include it as a, a written presentation, uh, that isn't bound to any, uh, system, or particular setting, um, that just sounds like you're taking a sort of normal workflow and just sort of making it official and making it something that other people can also use. Yeah, to to a certain extent, that is that is what I'm kind of doing with that. Because really, ultimately, what it is is these are campaign ideas or session ideas I've had that I just figure, hey, you know, this is something that was simple enough that. I could have easily converted this to Savage Worlds instead of 5th edition and mm-hmm. played it easily. And from there, I could take it and potentially, I could take a setting like this and potentially put it into Dark Heresy, Warhammer 40,000, and make it work that, oh, this this weird corruption, these weird creatures you're seeing, it's the result of chaos. Yeah. It still fits in the world. Uh, another one that I did, which I'm still sort of, I'm still getting everything written up and put together, was uh, I ran a farewell game for a friend of mine when he moved back uh, back east. That involved them. That's simple. Again, simple starting premise. They were members of a thieves guild with different different tasks that they they had, different roles that they fulfilled within it, but higher ranking members. And I, I started them, I think, at level five. It was a fifth edition game that I ran it as. But the idea was, you know, oh, they're going out on a job. You know, the, the guild master wants them to break into the warehouse to a large trading company because he's learned that they have a shipping manifest there. And recently they shipped off some real serious valuables and they want to try to intercept it. 
Sure. During the course of that, the players will stumble eventually, you know, once they find the office of the manager, they'll overhear him speaking with an assassin. And the idea is, is whichever player overhears them, whether they realize it or not, will get spotted by this assassin and pursued by them. Mm. Because the assassin turns out to be part of a particular cult of assassins that makes it a point that they will kill anyone who sees them that is not a client. And it ends up just sort of turning in, it turns from what should be a simple job into a dramatic and tense chase sequence, basically. Right. You know, as they go from location to location and find that shit has hit the fan. Uh, more or less. So it was a simple, basic premise that leads them on an adventure which could then be used as a jumping-off point for something greater. Yeah, I like the sound of that, too. Uh, as somebody who's looking down the barrel of uh, having to do playtests and think of adventures myself, it's 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 definitely uh, a good balance of simple, you know, but powerful story hooks, Things that you, you know, elements of things that you've seen before in pop culture. You're not trying to do something completely wacky. It doesn't sound like, but, but yeah. uh, being able to adapt it. And certainly I've heard and seen examples of, uh, myself when I do as a player, I'm playing and I just recognize that the GM is almost out of ideas and is now starting to recycle something that they've done before or, you know, it's just sort of a generic, big bad guy on the hill that, you know, um, is threatening the, the local town or some like, you know, timeless stereotype or something. And I often, well, then I also go and visit, um, places like uh, 4chan's TG board, tabletop gaming board, mm-hmm. where, where you've got, you know, people constantly trying to drum up ideas for campaigns and inspire each other with just some piece of artwork or just something, um, you know, there's different communities, Reddit and stuff, where you just have essentially this big collection of GMs that are that they're just hungry for some sort of hook or content that they can start using, and um, everything gets funneled into it. But to actually make a good, coherent adventure that doesn't rely on any given system is, I, I'm pretty sure that there must be something like that already. I've seen something similar to that at least. There with- is um, some blog. <laughs> That I've seen, there's a designer who runs a blog I've seen that does, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. But on like, uh, drive through RPG or something, is there not basically, maybe it's more on the beast and sort of monster side of things, uh, not an actual adventure? Yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff that goes through on like DTRPG of, you know, custom creatures, custom monster ideas that are, intentionally designed to be flexible. Um, actually, a lot of the guys that develop stuff on Minds share stuff like that. Uh, RPG Pundit, actually. Um, I don't know if you've had a yes, chance to talk right, yeah. over on Minds. Yeah, you know, he's got his RPG Pundit Presents series, which he's nearing his 100th one. He does those weekly, and they're designed expressly designed to work pretty much with Dungeons and Dragons or any OSR product. That That's is, right. Yeah. The OSR community is all, that must be what I was thinking of is the OSR guys. They're always feeding each other, um, adaptable material to, because they all sort of try to have this sort of common basis, um, 
they can they can easily feed each other an idea that would be compatible. Yeah, I, I found that uh the blog I was mentioning just now where I've seen that it's a um it's called Trilemma Adventures and you know this guy his name's Michael Prescott he makes uh two page little brief fantasy adventures. Huh. You know, where it's just basically giving you kind of that that core idea. Uh his stuff, like that's that's really what kind of got me to thinking about you know, doing something similar. Although mine are a little more, mine are more expansive than his. Mine are ranging about four to five pages, about two to two and a half times longer almost. But like, well, that's it's, fascinating, uh, though. Yeah, it's it's creative stuff. A lot of the artwork he does himself too, but it's he's got that hard restriction on himself. Where it's like you know, he keeps the adventures to two pages, keeps the descriptions brief, so that way they can be used across. A variety of settings with relative ease, and they're very imaginative. Yeah, apparently so, he's done pretty well on Kickstarter. So, yeah, um, one of uh, actually, I ran the first time I ran Maze Rats, I used one of his adventures, um, and uh, it's it does have very much that similar idea, that similar thought process where he presents an idea and leaves it for the GM to take where they will. Mm-hmm. And the, the adventure I ran, I, I don't recall the name of it, but it took place in a, a temple dedicated to an entire pantheon of very unusual gods. And one of the rooms of the temple was dedicated to this, this shadow god. And he describes, so it's got like this pool of oil sitting in the middle of a room with like, a giant face floating in it, facing up to the ceiling with like oil leaking out of, you know, the eyes, nose, and mouth. But when you enter the room, these two, you know, big dogs made of oil will rise out and attack you. Sure. And so running this in maze rats for my friends, I had the challenge of figuring out how do I make functionally these creatures, which are they're dogs, so we know they're going to run, they're going to bite, but they're made of oil. How am I going to make that function work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets, it gets me thinking about that. You know, ma- like, Maze Rats is a great system for adventures like this guy's and, you know, what I'm doing just because of the nature of it. But in D&D, I could have done something similar to what I ended up doing in Maze Rats, which was I, ba- I set it so that uh, they only had one health point. So you could smash them apart really easily, but within a round, they'd be forming back up. They're, they're living oil. Mm-hmm. So they're going to just take their form again. The rule I made was if you want to actually permanently kill them, you could freeze them and they'd stay in place, but eventually they're going to melt and they'll keep going again. If you want to permanently kill them, you got to use fire or possibly lightning, something to ignite them. Sure, yeah. With the danger being, since it's literally a giant running glob of oil, it's probably going to explode. So <laughs> now they got now they can just, breathe fire yeah. as well, or something. You know. Yeah, exactly. It, but just from that simple description of oh, these are basically large attack dogs made of oil. I was able to develop a full, interesting way of making encounters happen. You know, just by having that freedom to look at this and say, hey, you know, this is a cool idea. Where can I run with it? Looking at this material, I'm wondering if you have uh, any intention of selling your stuff or doing full, like, artwork or even partial artwork for for what you're doing. Is it 
is it pl- something you plan on distributing like through mines and just sort of having the community look at it, or do you want to do an RPG pundit sort of thing and release it? Somewhere? I I'm I am thinking of actually like publishing and selling the the compendium once it's it's put together. I'm going to be asking people over time, you know, to play the adventures and kind of check them out, give me some feedback and suggestions on things that they might like to see mm-hmm. like, changed or that they think would like was. Two was clear enough, not clear enough, things like that. You know, do a little play testing with them to see if the ideas can work across multiple systems as well. But um, I am planning on actually getting artwork done for it, and I have gotten a couple pieces done already by uh, my friend uh, who does the art for my webcomic. Nice. So yeah. uh, I don't know if you have a link to your webcomic you want to share with me or not, but I, I'd i be curious to see what the – what you got going on with that as well. Maybe we can finish up with that. Yeah, yeah so uh, the webcomic is called Phoenix Rising. We host it over on Webtoon, which uh, largely is it's a bunch of, you know, Korean comics, things like that. But uh, my friend, my artist friend, we started, um, we started a little over a year ago now, actually just last month, or not, not last month, uh, two months ago. The 21st of July, we hit our uh, one-year anniversary. Um, but we've been working on it for about, I think now, probably about three years in total. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I'm, I've been handling the writing. She handles the art. And currently, we just we post it as like a monthly serial kind of thing, mostly just because on top of everything else we do, we're also, we also work full-time. So, so we, yeah. we don't have – we can't do what a lot of the more professional – comic artists and comic developers do where they're working on that all the time. That's their livelihood. It's not the case with this, but all of, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of the characters in this comic are characters that we've role played with in the past. Okay. Um, some of them were used in D and D games. Uh, almost all of them were used in freeform games too. So these are characters whose stories we've kind of been messing around with and exploring for a long time anyway. And she reached out to me a couple of years ago and said, Hey, you know, she told me she was thinking about the idea of, you know, drawing a web comic. And she was saying like, you know, what, what do you think about that idea? So I, I told her, you might as well do it if you think you can keep up. You know, she went to art school for a long time. Her job involves a lot of that kind of stuff as it is anyway. And, but, you know, she wasn't sure about whether or not to, you know, take up a big project like that. Mm-hmm. So I just yeah, kinda, it's kind of a commitment. I, yeah. But I, so I kind of convinced her, I, I pulled the whole, you know, tabletop role playing line. So yeah, you know, if you want to do it, you want to try it, just, just do it. See what happens. And, you know, so she, started kind of asking around or basically, or well, she basically said, like, all right, cool. And my thing is like, if I'm going to be drawing it off, I'm going to have time to write something. Do you know anyone who'd be interested in writing? And she didn't ask me right away because she knew that I was pretty busy. So I asked, I told her, you know, I'll ask around. I know some people who might be interested and nothing really took off. You know, it was uh, just everyone I asked had too much on their plate at the time. So she came back a few days later with this telling me that, oh, you know, I was going back 
And I was looking at all the old role plays that we used to be in because the freeform ones were all play by post. We, so okay. we could still find, we could still find them online. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, reread some of the stuff we've done and, and uh, cringe a little bit at some of the stuff we wrote <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> but, um, so she came and she said, Oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to, you know, role play with these characters again. And I told her, well, why don't we make the comic about them? Nice. And so they just two birds with one stone there. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So the brunt of the work is uh, most of the work ends up being, you know, with her because the artwork takes up the majority of the work with this thing. But, yeah. You know, I, I handle the writing, you know, I script out the story, everything like that. And, um, you know, we give, we give each other input on everything that we're doing. Yeah. She's got full, she gives input and suggestions on what I'm writing. Her husband actually helps with some of the editing. And then I give input on the artwork too, so that we can just, you know, make, make it the best that we can with the type of, uh, the type of story that we want to tell. And pretty much what it ended up being is a pseudo continuation of the, you know, prior stories we used to role play. Mm-hmm. Set up, but set up in a way that it runs relatively independently. Like we've hinted in the story at previous events to sort of, kind of, uh, for, well, in part for our friends who used to role play with us, we've hinted at events that have happened with them to sort of, you know, get them excited and, Sure. Everyone loves to have their, yeah, everyone loves to have their old role playing experiences validated again later on down the road. Yeah. And then uh, a lot of our friends have been kind of amused, like seeing some of those things come up again or seeing little things referenced. But, you know, I try to be careful to do that in a way that it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm referencing something that absolutely happened before. You don't know what it is. I try to write it in such a way that it's like, oh, you know, it reads as just, you know, accessible for a new to, person, right? Yeah. Now. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the phrase I'm looking for. It's, it's easy, easily accessible. And, you know, the core, uh, the core thing with it is that we want to keep the story, we wanted to keep the story with these characters going forward because these are characters that we've grown very attached to and playing with them for a long time. So we wanted to do that, but we also wanted to do it in a way that wasn't completely married to what we did before so yeah yeah give yourself enough room to to you know you're older now you have probably better ideas and more ideas and you know you can you can definitely you don't want to box yourself into just being beholden to what what you did before previously established things yeah Uh, i noticed the color it's like fully colored and it has a it, it feels like a sort of uh you know, PG, uh, you know, inoffensive style. If, if people want to, you know, if you wanted to share it with other people, it would be, it doesn't seem like it's a, it's a frightening or, uh, no, yeah, it's it's, it's it's not, it's not overly adult. The way, the way I've always kind of looked at it is it's, um, uh, this is, this is, and this is a term I learned from, you know, from, uh, Watch when I watch a bar rescue of all things is a uh, family accessible. It's not necessarily family friendly. You know, there are adult themes. There's, you know, uh, allusions to more adult things. Sure. I mean, the, the key, the key plot with this, you know, that is revealed in the prologue is that 
one of the characters is being pursued by, has been found and is being pursued by an old flame that became obsessive, so she broke things off of him. And he's trying to force her back into his life. So it's, you know, that's right. That that brings up questions of bodily autonomy, and will, and all that <laughs> right, stuff. Right. Yeah, but I mean, uh, PG. it's not overtly saying it, but it hints at that stuff. Another one of the characters, because of the kind of life he's lived and his upbringing, he's more likely to drop a heavy swear or two there every now and then, just because that's the sort of lowbrow person he is. But. It's not to the point where you're hearing the F word every five set, like reading the F word every like other page, yeah. which amazingly I've seen happen in some Marvel comics now. It's like, what are you doing? You know, mm. I thought this was supposed to be, you know, like fairly accessible to some kids. And At stuff. least like teenage, you know, uh, you know, you want that. I don't know. To me, a good adventure story, um, especially if it's supposed to be kind of like a high adventure, uh, thrilling tales kind of thing. You want it to be something that like a 14 year old could read and just not like, not feel like they're, you know, they're reading something that they're not supposed to or something like it's, you want to have a balance there where their yeah. mind, somebody's mind is already full of ideas of, you know, what they want to do and they can relate with these characters or something, but, you know, you don't want to go full Warhammer 40k on them or, or something like that in heaven. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's like, and that, that's something we tried to keep in mind is just, you know, when, when we were working on this, like when we first started, you know, playing these characters the very first times, like I think, I, I think I was 21 when I first played, uh, because the, the character who is entirely mine in this is the character of Regina. And, um, the other two characters that were entirely the artists for, at the start were the two sibling characters, Ahote and Ajeni, which are the two white-haired ones. Then all the other characters in this we pretty much built together. One of us would have been, might have been the source of the idea, but we built the other characters kind of together. But um, we played those original three characters, playing them for like the last 11 or 12 years. You know, and she was, was in her mid, she was in her mid teens when she started this. She's Mm. a few years younger than I am. So I think she was about 15, 16 when she started this. So I kind of kept that in mind that like, you know, where the characters started from in our lives, I want to keep that level of relatability in the writing, you know, and that level of accessibility. Like, I don't know if I could do that, but that, that is a a respectable goal. I, I tend to cringe so much at my younger ideas that I uh, <laughs> I, I fully abandon yeah, them as soon as uh, I, I don't I don't use really the younger ideas, but I, I want it to be I want to keep the story you know engaging enough and interesting enough that it can draw like, a lot of people in, but I don't want it to feel like it's gated off to like people mm-hmm. of a certain area. If you know what I mean? It's just like like I said, fam- family accessible kind of goal. Yeah. And, you know, one of our, for both of us, one of the big points of inspiration was Avatar The Last Airbender. So it's it's a show for kids. Okay, yeah. But it's so well made and the story is so well told that even now as a 32-year-old, I can go back and watch the series and still feel every bit as connected to those characters who are 11, 12, 14, 16 years old because the situations they're thrust in even though they're kids, is 
very adult. They are dealing to yeah. a degree with the real ramifications of a major war. I mean, yeah, and that the young adult and teen sort of genre has proven that over and over again for sure. I mean, the you know Harry Potter or something is like you got kids, but it's still people get so emotionally into it. You can read it as an adult and enjoy it, and you know there's there's classic examples everywhere of stories that manage to a lot of animes and sort of mangas and stuff like that do that too or and comic superhero comics used to be like that apparently they're not that much anymore but yeah yeah i'm uh, I, I could get into like sort of the craziness that's gone on with the comics industry but i'm not super knowledgeable about it my knowledge is kind of second hand from watching guys who talk about it on youtube just cuz the the lunacy of the industry itself is fascinating to me, particularly oh, yeah. because of how of how little these companies seem to care about the fact that they are abjectly failing. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's a nonstop train wreck, and it just keeps getting more funding, apparently, and they don't learn. So I know I've absolutely, um, to a lesser extent in RPGs, but also in, but you know, it's very blatantly in comics, you have the Marvel Cinematic Universe being so widely, you know, enjoyed and so successful. And then in the comics, it seems like they learned all the wrong lessons and they're doing exactly the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that would be a topic for a different day, maybe. Uh, but, uh, I know, uh, so that this, just so people who are listening, you probably didn't, you know, catch the name of the comic. It's Phoenix Rising. Yes. Okay. So Phoenix Rising on webtoons.com you can go w- read the the monthly webcomic there and um on minds you go by the man behind the screen yes on and- minds it is the man behind the screen which is the same for youtube and bitshoot as um like I did mention at the start of the video, my, uh, the actual name tagged onto the YouTube account, like on the URL is not the man behind the screen because the channel itself is very old and they don't let you change the name as it appears in the URL. Mm, right. So it's a, it's a name that I picked back in 2007. <laughs> but it can Which, be found and people can Yes, it can, it. it can be found. You just, through the search, just search the man behind the screen. I'm pretty sure it's within the top, like, three or four searches. Get advice there, for, advice for GMing and role playing and, and, um, you know, different ideas for adventures and stuff like that too. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some more of your, what you end up doing with this compendium, um, especially, I mean, just for my own selfish reasons, I always like to see people proposing different campaign ideas and, and the angle that people take, the sort of the balance people strike between detailed information versus sort of just inspiring concepts and stuff, it really helps to be in right in the middle of an interesting scene of content creators, OSR guys, uh, indie developers, all this stuff. That's why I like doing the podcast too. Is that? Oh yeah. Is, is to just sort of once you're right in the middle of all this activity and see different people's take on the hobby, um, it. It, it helps center me so that I don't go too far off into a crazy, uh, you know, angle <laughs> where it's like nobody actually wants this much information or maybe they do. And so you can see what works, what doesn't talk to other creators, get a yeah. sense of it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely been good. Like my minds in particular has been 
pretty great for, you know, just finding a lot of independent content creators in general, not, not just YouTubers and not just tabletop people with artists and things like that. Like the very vast majority of people I follow on minds are, you know, other creators mm-hmm. of one stripe or another. And that's been great. Like since going there, I, I followed a few pages on Facebook when I used that really regularly, you know, way back when, before I started just getting sick of it. Yeah. But, even then, following a multitude of pages about tabletop gaming or following specific uh, content creators who discuss that stuff or produce content for that stuff, you know, it was, it's not as personable as things are on Minds. You know, for the unfairly bad rap Minds has gotten from, you know, the media. It's, sure. It's every the, alternative. The people, the people there are very personable. Yeah. You know, I've, 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 I think I've only ever run into one or two people there who were, who were like real dickish. But, um, yeah, it's like, but it's, it's had my creative muscles, you know, it's had my creative muscles working almost constantly, just seeing the different things people are posting and sharing. And it, it's been great for helping me get inspired and just, get new ideas. Yeah, that's so. why I'm, I'm starting to bug people more and, and reach out and, you know, be like, hey, you want to be on the podcast? You want to, you know, let me see some more of your stuff. Like, I feel like uh, there's a lot of cool people there who can be prodded to be a little bit more out of their shell and treat it like sort of a, um, I, I, I kind of wish people were just more casual and constantly posting updates and just sort of being in the loop with each other's stuff as friends. Um Instead of just sort of treating it as this is a platform where I post official updates and I just, uh, you know, I, this is just a promotional avenue for me almost like it's like I love the the community aspect and feeling of having a bunch of creative people together and I hate Reddit I hate uh, Facebook I hate these places where everyone's upvoting karma and stuff like that and mine's kind of has a a simple feel where I love the blog feature. So if you want to do a big in-depth write-up, you can have formatting and headers and embed stuff. And if you want to upload video, they just actually let you upload, I think, 15 minutes of video straight with no... They went up to 20 minutes recently, but I don't know if they stuck with that because that was creating some problems for the uploads. Um, I believe it was about a month ago. I tried uploading something that I recorded that was just under 20 minutes. It was like you know, 19, 19 minutes, 30 seconds or something, but it would never upload. Oh, that's uh, so a shame. They, they, they've, they've had some, they've had some issues with functionality on the site recently. Um, and a couple things have been changing, have been at, impacting some of the functionality issues that really made it great for independence, uh, particularly the boost feature they've been struggling with recently since they made a change for like premium users to, Boosts to a level twice as much, twice as high as everyone else has really backed up the system. Which, ah, I see. That, that's something that the community has kind of been pushing back on them with, and that fight's kind of still going on, but. Hopefully they're react, yeah. responsive and reactive to what the community is actually wanting, though. I mean, I, I think it's a great platform. They've definitely got a very strong technological back end at the core of it, and, the extra features they're trying to add, like the fact that they allow you to upload any video is already impressive to me. Yeah. Um, because normally it's like I was using Patreon. I have like patreon.com slash Pullman is where I upload 
my podcast to first. Um, and that was, you know, I literally ended up on Patreon, not because I wanted to make money off of the podcast. I was intended to make it free for everyone to listen to, but, but, but because they would just let you upload audio files straight up onto their platform. I didn't have to find an audio host and then wow. link to it. I had no, I had no idea they would let you do that. That's, that's yeah. pretty interesting. The only problem is that you can never, um, you can't like link the RSS feed from your Patreon to iTunes or anywhere else. So yeah, it's, you it's, have to go it, and visit the actual page. page. Yeah, if it's on Patreon, it's only on Patreon. It, it's a little island of your own thing. And if you have a bunch of patrons or something, maybe that's that's cool. But you definitely don't get that discoverability effect. So now that I'm yes. up, I'm re-uploading everything to Anchor.fm. Uh, that's where it's suddenly, it's an incredible service. I, I, I can't even believe that, um, it's as effective as it is, but it puts it on iTunes. It puts it on everything. They allow you to upload it for free. They have an interesting business model. If you do want to start getting sponsorships on your thing and then they take a cut of those sponsorships and, um, I'll definitely, I will definitely look into that, you know, for, uh, once the live play podcast starts getting put together on my end. Yeah. That sounds like a fantastic. I, I absolutely recommend it. And I think if you're in America, um, they let you get sponsorships, but right now it seems like they, you have to be signed up with an American uh, payment processor that wouldn't work otherwise. Um, yeah, I imagine it's probably a little bit, a uh, little bit difficult. But hopefully they, they would, you know, scale out and stuff. I, I remember I signed up for Anchor when it was really new and had almost no features and they had a kind of a strange business model back then. But, uh, and then I forgot about it for a long time and now I came back to them like, whoa, these guys have totally stepped up their game and it's amazing. It's way better than SoundCloud as, as far as I'm concerned. It's just a great free platform for people to be able to upload tons of stuff. So. Um, doesn't seem like definitely a... keep that in mind. Then. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely see you around on Minds, and I'll be uh, looking forward to what you do there. And I, I kind of went into that role playing group that exists there and saw that it was it was so inactive. Uh, but I'm I'm always trying to push people. I did this on the discords too that I was on. You know, I'm always trying to push people to just be more open as creators and you know, throw your rants and your opinions and stuff. Just like, I love that community scene of a bunch of people who don't have to agree on everything, but you know, we're all kind of in the same boat trying to, uh, you know, trying to find players and improve the RPG community and experience. And on the design side, there's a lot of OSR guys who kind of really blur the line between indie designer and, just the GM who takes really seriously his craft. And that's something that I, I find fascinating too. I like our OSR guys, even though I don't know what the hell OSR really means. Um, it's yeah, not- it's got a, it's got a pretty varied definition. According <laughs> to, uh, it's like, according to some people, like, like according to pundit, for example, it's gotta, it's gotta have the foundation in old school D and D. Gotta have those D and D elements. Right. But then yep. if you go and you talk to Grim Jim, no, it doesn't have to have that. It can be totally different. Yeah. Everyone's, exactly. everyone's got a different opinion on what exactly it means. It's very nebulous, which has led to some interesting results. 
I kind of like that. I like really messy, you know, but passionate discussions about what, what's happening and stuff. So the, another reason for the podcast, I'd like to try to sort out where people stand on different, different ideologies like that, where it's, we know something is happening. People are, are tired of something and they want to sort of revive this, whatever old school means to them. And that, that's perfect for me to get, dig in and try to figure out what's really going on and how we can cater to whatever audience that is, whatever feeling it is that connects everyone there. Um, but, oh man. All right. I'm going to say that's, that's it for this episode. And, uh, I want to thank you for coming on, Dave. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, so yeah, people can go see Phoenix Rising on Webtoons, uh, you know, go look you up on Minds. If there's any links and stuff you want to give me, just, just send it to me on Discord and I'll, I'll put it in the description. And then, uh, yeah, sometime in the future, once you have more, more stuff out there, more stuff to show, you can come back on and we can, we can follow up on this stuff. Sounds wonderful. All right, see you around. Thank you.